0: Welcome to episode 12 of Source of Uncertainty. I'm Robert Standifer. And I'm Kyle Swisher. And this is going to be a great show. We have it's quite a long one, so settle in for, what do we have, Kyle, like two and a half hours for this episode?
1: Well, we'll see. We still got to put this baby together, <laughs> but... Uh, Stretch it out yeah. to three.
0: I like three. Yeah. Let's make it a
1: three-hour app. All, all good
0: stuff. So we have a fantastic guest today. Um, we have Barry Schrader on the show. I'm super excited about that. Kyle somehow pulled that together one day. He said, hey, you know, uh, what are you doing on you know April 12th? Like, I don't know, paying taxes maybe? Said, <laughs> Do you want to talk to Barry Schrader? Hell yeah, man. And you know, the funny thing about Barry is too, Kyle, I don't know if you remember, but it took me probably 50 times before I could remember his name. You remember <laughs> we you like, Who's that guy that did Lost Atlantis? Barry Schrader. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured uh, I should remember now. I don't know why I can never remember his name, but.
1: but did no. I introduce you to Lost Atlantis? You did, did.
0: You did. Back yeah. before we did Tim Held's episode of um, Podmod. You, mm-hmm. you like just a couple of weeks before that, You said, oh. you got to hear this Lost Atlantis thing. And I didn't know that it was vintage. You know, I didn't know that it was from the 70s.
1: Yeah. You remember? Yeah. Like that's what that's what I don't know. That's what blows me away about this about that album is that I don't know. It sounds so amazing. Yeah. And actually, I heard of it from um, Tony from Make Noise. I think I think it was on. He was on the um, Darwin Gross's podcast and was um, was talking about that album. And so that's where I, I first heard of it. And he was just saying how, you know, yeah, it still sounds very current and
0: yeah. And, uh, blew me away. And he was doing things in that in his um with his modular bookle two hundred, which I think belonged to Cal Arts. Yeah. And um I mean those are I was like, Oh, that's the two sixty E. because I didn't realize that he had, it was from, you know, nineteen seventy seven and and I think that's right. And I'm like,
1: wow, I think he, a little bit actually a little bit earlier or well, because it was recorded in two different sections because like Trinity was done before. I think, that's right. The rest of it. Yeah, but, you're, yeah, you're the you're the Barry Schrader scholar. Yeah. <laughs> but. I'm trying. Um, yeah, I was pretty. But um, yeah, I reached out to him and um, and we got him. And because, yeah, he just has re- released um, a lot of his stuff on Bandcamp Has kind of ported stuff over to his a new Bandcamp site. So um, yeah, definitely check that out. Barry Schrader um, So yeah, if you haven't listened to that album, I'd say yeah. <laughs> make this episode longer, go listen to it, go buy it, you know, and then, and then yeah. come back. It It's one
0: of, it, it's just a fantastic piece of music. And when you, you know, when you add the bukla level or the bukla layer to it, it definitely makes it, you know, more interesting or, if that's, if that's something that we particularly find interesting. We're always list, we're always looking for cool stuff made on the book club, but just in terms of the composition and the way it sounds and the sort of zen-like state that it puts you in when you listen to it start to end the way albums used to be, it's just mm-hmm. fantastic. I like yeah. to play it when I'm building Lego sets in my dining room. I just, and I, every now and then <laughs> oh. I'm like, I'll stop and say, Zoe, listen to this part. <laughs> it's just so cool. And inspired by Mr. Schrader or Dr. Schrader, he um, <laughs> I think he's I think he's got a PhD. I'm pretty sure he does. Um, we Kyle and I have been talking about this concept of a bass patch for a long time. And Barry's liner notes for the CD have some details about the patch, that, the bass patch that he created for that album. It's essentially the same patch for the whole thing. And he uses lots of control voltage modulation to do all the really really cool stuff and, and creative mixing. And so Kyle and I would like, hmm, how do we approach a bass patch? We've talked about Richard Lane Hart and his system, and Suzanne Chiani, you know, who has the same setup for all of her performances and, and does a lot of modulation for some interesting stuff.
1: I and have- then in in Steve H, uh, right, Steve for last month, too. Yeah, where he's got his Skylab and his his Logic it was. What are we referring to? is world of logic? World, or? yeah, yeah, It's
0: like um, twenty loopers in his his logic setup.
1: Yeah, but kind of patching the same in the same way, kind of coming back to one one patch and then expanding on that patch so you're not re, you know pulling it, pulling it and starting clean every time you approach the instrument.
0: And that's a a fascinating thing. I did some research on um, various synthesizer and modular related websites. And some people will have, even in Eurorack, will have one patch and never remove it. In 5U, you know, the big Moog modular format, that's actually very common. So somebody will design their instrument by patching it and just use keyboard modulation sources, you know, and mixing to get the different timbres and stuff out of it. And I thought, man, that, you know, with my Buchla, I like to I like to patch it one of the things i love about it is the patch cables you know plugging them in and, and ripping them out so the concept mm-hmm. of having a patch that lasts me through the entirety of 2020 it was just like a, a mind-blowing thing for me
1: yeah or beyond for a lot of these yeah you know people that do it and it, you know I, I i must i'm thinking it's part of it is like necessity of like how many how much they're performing like i think of suzanne who you know, has done a lot of travel and played a lot of shows. And so, you know, why try and kind of reinvent the wheel every, (laughs) every time. And that's, that's just hard. I mean, I think she has it all set up to where she can, there's certain sections where she can improvise within that, um, within those sections. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, I'm like you, I like coming to it kind of fresh every once in a while and it just, all those opportunities are then open they're not filled up with cables and you can kind of you know it's like oh, i'm going to try patching this to this today and so i think that idea of a Bates patch seemed i don't know distant or like i you know it's like why would i want to hold myself back to that but yeah um but this is it's been yeah fun so yeah i guess to get into this we um we decided to yeah spend the last couple of weeks really thinking about that and try to put together our own base patches, um, and it's the yeah, the results, results
0: so different between the two of us. It it was really awesome. Yeah, so we'll have two different segments. We'll have um, Kyle on his two hundred clone system with an Easel, and me on my two hundred E system. And um, you know when we started talking about this, I thought we would kind of go in the same direction, but of course we went in wildly different directions. It's been (laughs) it's awesome though; it's really really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean it's the you know the um, the technology and just the you know the way that we have our stuff set up, it it had to guide us in a certain way, or you know with what limitations we had, and and so
0: yeah. Well, the the one other thing about the master, or I'm sorry, the base patch. Is um, when you if you ever watch, there's a great video of Suzanne setting up for a concert, and she has two one gallon Ziploc bags full yeah. of, banana, of Pomonas and tiny Jacks cables, and she's just pulling them out and putting them where they go. And if you just look at her system, completely patched, like holy moly, man! How does she know? But that's the thing; it's her it's her master, her base patch. So she's always doing that. It's just muscle memory. -hmm. I thought that would be kind of neat to be able to just go from performance to performance and just plug them in, you know, and know what and have the exactly what the expectation is. Yeah, that was an interesting side. uh, Do you think?
1: I guess if you were to pull this all apart, like, do you need more time with it right now? Like, could you get back to it? Could you do that? (laughs) Like, if you pull, if I pulled everything out of there and then I told you, like, go. do you think at this point you could put it all back together?
0: I I know I could do the CV part back together
2: mm-hmm.
0: because when I patched the CV, I was way more methodical about the color of the cable and the order of them. You know, when I did mm-hmm. the audio, it was a little bit more herky-jerky because I just was like, Oh, I need to route this here. And so I have, you know, sound source. One is not plugged into input one on my signal router. But if I did yeah. that, if I kind of standardized there, then yeah, I, I could take just the modules that I used for the segment, put them in my portable case, and go to a show and just set it up without needing to um, to look at any, in any notes, which is mm-hmm. really fascinating. Because usually I document my patches, you know, using a markup language, and yeah. then I pull out my you know iPad, like okay, this goes here and this goes here, and if I miss a cable the performance goes south <laughs> as
1: you've <have> heard. <laughs> it's always that one pesky one that you, gets away.
0: Do you think you could do it? Do you think you could unpatch and repatch?
1: I think I could, yeah. I um, I mean, I'll get into it, but I already, I kind of, I expanded on a patch that I did recently, like, um, because I thought like, oh, there's a lot of opportunities where I can go, you know, this way or that way. So so I was able to kind of recreate with, and I did, I had that patch totally pulled apart and I was able to put it back and then expand on it. And I think, yeah, hmm. I, you know, I've got, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if I'm using as many modules as you are. No, and you're not some of them are, are quite, <laughs> quite less, some, yeah, less complex in a way too. So, but, but yeah, so, I mean, kind of interesting, like, Oh, maybe I will, you know, Break this out. To, you know, bring this out to a module on the spot or something. Whenever yeah. those are going to happen again, but I'd,
0: I'd make a couple of changes. I talk about that in my segment, so I don't want to give too many spoilers. But I, I would definitely introduce the control voltage processor into the mix.
1: Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and other than that, you know, I, I think that inspired by Richard Lanehart, who principally, no pun intended, used a bunch of oscillators, a bunch of two sixty one Es and did tons and tons of really awesome modulation across them without mis- needing a bunch of other modules, you know, to mm-hmm. result in that. And then using his Hawken Continuum as his expressive device, device, he put out unbelievably gorgeous music with that. And so that just, it goes to the modules you're using and how you patch them and how they make up your instrument as opposed to just yeah. kind of experimenting with where the, the plugs go, which is fun and it's a totally different thing. And one is not necessarily better than the other, being very diplomatic yeah.
1: there. And then it's also, yeah, your intention of what you want to do. So, yeah, um, you know, having the, he has all that touch control, that kind of reminds me of like what uh, Steve H. was saying, you know, he didn't really have any sequences or anything going on. Like sound is only coming out when he has his fingers on the 223E. Yeah moving stuff around and you know choosing his notes and so that was kind of similar to like what richard was doing for for a lot of stuff that i've heard on um that he's done that he did with his his patch but well we've probably talked enough
0: why don't we uh go ahead and segue into these really really i think really cool segments and kind of bringing back the way that we used to do things on the show and um i i definitely had a lot of fun i can't wait to to hear what other people come up with.
1: Yeah, if you've got, if you do use this method, if you have a, a base patch, we uh, would be really interested to to hear about it. So, yeah, reach out, uh, sourceofuncertainty.audio. Okay, so I'm about to dig into my base patch. Um, so, yeah, thinking about this has been a lot of fun. Um, all the people that we've kind of mentioned before that have gotten into using a bass patch for the performances or for recording—you uh, know—something must have initially kind of struck them to want to keep returning to that patch. And it's interesting to to try and dig in within the past week or so where all where these people, you know, have spent years <laughs> developing their patch so so yeah I'm going to do the best that I can within a week but it's kind of exciting to think about is if I do keep coming back to this uh setup what else I can kind of draw from it so at this point in time um you know I'm able to to pull out a a few different things in my mind I can you know probably play a you know, 40 minute patch or something, or performance with this. Um, But, you know, all the areas kind of have room to to stretch out. And so I definitely haven't, you know, stretched this uh, patch out to its fullest yet. But here we go. Um, So actually, the initial idea for this patch, um, I, a few weeks ago, recorded uh, a patch for the Data Cult audio podcast, which is a, a great podcast um, that just has experimental electronic music, uh, just music in there. And um, and so, yeah, I was recording t- to do an episode for that that should be out sometime in June, I believe. Um, and so I did a, a patch that would, I guess I would kind of say, if you listen to my music which usually at the end of every episode is a track that I've I've done, uh, or if you know you've listened to one of my albums, um, I do get pretty kind of um, I have structure in my <laughs> songs, or I feel like there's they come almost have like a uh, a verse chorus verse sensibility to them, and uh, so I made a patch, you know that I don't know I feel like it's kind of. If people know my music be like yeah that sounds like something kyle would do and then um and then i've wanted to do another patch for it uh because you can kind of have up to an hour of time um working on this podcast or, or um or to to present the music so uh, i And there is kind of a focus to do longer pieces and let people kind of really sit with it. So then I wanted to make a patch that I could stretch out some things. So this is that patch, but stretched out even further. So um, it made me think about kind of what in, I guess, in terms of composing things, like what's important to me and how in this patch I can kind of uh, be able to... Uh, modulate all these things, which would be kind of timbre, rhythm, pitch, tempo, panning, and then like atmosphere or vibe, as um, I guess what I'd kind of say like effects. Um, so to not go into, I'll just kind of quickly. Go into I guess uh, I won't go into like every single patch point and it'll just kind of come up as I go. But I am using the Book Music easel uh, with a two eight two bucks card from uh, Portobello Labs. And then I've got the uh, MARF clone, uh, the 259 programmable complex waveform generator, uh, the quad function generator, quad low pass gates, uh, my 277... Uh, Delay unit and also the 207 mixer. Okay, so um, this patch first kind of starts out. I wanted to, I've had fun um, playing with kind of um, phasing uh, sequences, like dual sequences, kind of Steve Reiki type of stuff. Uh, My uh, friend Jim Schoenicker and I have kind of been passing back and forth different variations on that with our, our March, with our Marf. Patches, and so, uh, so yeah, I have both the kind of complex sides of my oscillators. So like the the principal oscillator on the 259 and the uh, complex oscillator on the easel. Uh, pitch information is or that they're drawing their pitches from the Marf. So each section of the two um, sequencers, I guess I'd call them, or um, function generators. connected to pitch and they're tuned the same and I thought it would just kind of be easy to have a bass tuning so then I can also flip stuff around later on like for pitch stuff and I'd get somewhat the same results Um, and then um, yeah so I've got two uh, a six-step sequence and then a seven-step sequence going to each of those and so as they play they are kind of um phasing in and out of each other because they don't have enough or they don't have the same amount of steps and then I'm also able to um I don't have them clocked or synced together so I am able to kind of jam with them uh in more of a freeform way with their tempos so I'll kind of get those started So that is uh, also panhard right, which you're probably hearing. Uh, that is the uh, the complex oscillator on the easel. And then if I bring in the one on the left, that's the 259. Um, so part of, I guess, the dynamics um, portion of this, I have their uh, programmed pulse outs f- There's um, stage one of each of the function generators going into uh, two envelopes or function generators into the 292. Um, And those are very accessible, so I'm able to kind of turn those uh, whenever I need to, um, along with switching the tempo by hand so I can start shaping the envelopes a bit more. And then I can, yeah, change tempo. I could speed one up a little bit and then slow one down. Or I can speed them both up. So I can have the envelopes kind of close down all the way or bring them up a little bit. So there's pitch information there. There's dynamics and tempo going on there. Um, I also chose these oscillators because they have their uh, the, the timbre and harmonic section on them. So then I'm able to put envelopes or random into those things to um, you know make it not so uh, static because they're just basically two sine waves going on right now. So I have an envelope. I have two, basically the other two envelopes I haven't used are the function generators from the uh, 281 going into each of the timbre circuits, so then I can turn those up. And I could do this by hand too, I could, like I have one that I'm sweeping by hand and the other one has an envelope going to it, or I can use both envelopes. Uh, I also have, um, with the tool toolbox, I have access to sweep the actual, um, the timbre knob, which goes from whatever setting you have it, whether it's square wave, uh, triangle, or saw wave. And I also have a, um, the inverse of this envelope that I'm going to run to that uh, knob, also going into the harmonic section on the uh, 259. And that kind of makes it, depending on where the symmetry is, sound more like a square or a saw wave. So I'll turn both those up. So just another bit of variation. Um, while it's a very repetitive um, sequence, uh, I feel like with changing the timbre, and the tempo and the different envelopes uh, help make it fresh. Uh, So another cool thing I've got set up uh, with this patch is I have the timing uh, sliders, the timing outputs for each of the function generators on the MARF going into the uh, panning for the 207 mixer. So these are hard panned left and right. But if I uh, move up a slider, I also have like a, uh, I've tricked the MARF into thinking, that there's um it's going to read the external input section for information for these time sliders but I don't have anything plugged in there so then I can just freely use these time sliders without them affecting the actual timing. So if I just move up the let's say number 1 slider um each time it passes over the first step it's going to shift over to um it's going to go left or right depending Uh, which oscillator it is so if I just so I just have one oscillator now and you can hear on that uh, lower bass note it goes to the left then if I turn up like four five it's bouncing back and forth so now if I get the other one in it's kind of fun Uh, I can also double up and use those um shut down the uh, function generators so they're at their minimum settings. Uh, I could also double use the, the timing output um, i put these back down um, into maybe like the attack uh, input on each of the envelopes so plug those in and now if I turn up say number 3 um, voltage is going into the attack phase and you're getting more of a swell with every hit and then it's also changing the direction um, of the panning for each of these Um, so to bring in um, some more vibe or whatever um, I could have I have a even tied space pedal here I also have my delay so I can also bring in these lines, which is nice. Um, I don't think I actually set that up. That sound, that's a good setting right there. Um, but I have the, um, the control input for the delay time. Um, I have my preset voltage source on the music easel um, set to adjust that. So with the spin of one of the knobs and uh, or tapping through the other knobs as I'll show later on in the patch I can change the timing of that so something I can also kind of riff on by you know extending the time or um, bring it, making it really short And so yeah then I can just do different things to with all these parameters. Sliders to have it um, pan around and to have those uh, attack sections get longer.
2: Okay, and then, um, so yeah, this has been good, but then I could
1: slow everything down and pull open the envelopes. And turn up the delay. I could bring in uh, the Eventide space. So yeah, I went from pretty rhythmic to going more ambient. And in here, I could adjust different uh, parameters on the MARF. I could also bring in like some uh, slopes settings to make things um, glide around a bit. And I could change their... Um, The range, the voltage range, which should adjust it uh, per octaves. I don't quite have my oscillators uh, dialed in to get them at octaves, but they still um, sound pretty good when changing the settings. What I could have done too earlier is also I do have a um, the program pulses on the second function generator. Um, I could put stop steps on the first and uh, basically sync them. So if I did want to have less kind of chaos between the two and wanted them in sync, I could have done that as well. And that's something you can do pretty easily on the fly. I have like a dummy cable set up here, but I guess for time should probably kind of move on so yes we're moving on Um, I wanted to get into something that was a bit more rhythmic so I'm gonna bring down all my my atmosphere and a fun thing with the Marf is um, how kind of weird you can get with the um, with the time sliders and the time range. I mean, there's th- like three or four different ways to adjust the timing on this thing, which is kind of fun. So yeah, if I kind of adjust my my function generators and if I bring in some random and modulation bring in some yeah like some am modulation i can uh kind of get some more interesting rhythmic things going so let me turn this up a bit So this, I do have. Um, I have one section, the second function generator, clocking the other one. Um, so kind of by having a random smattering of uh, time ranges, and I'm using, I think, um, I think six steps on the right function generator, and then I think five steps on the left function generator. They're once again don't have the same amount of steps, so. Um, as one is clocking the other, it's kind of a random um, setting of, of when things are going to repeat. So just Changing different. Here, I'll take the uh, the modifiers I had into the attack portion of this. Um, so yeah, just by ju- adjusting the sliders on the Marf for the um, for the stages that I'm using, you can get different rhythms. Can also, adjust the overall uh, time multiplier. I had that set kind of quickly all the way up. Yeah, so. You can also then bring back in the uh, the delay. When you kind of have this rhythmic stuff, anyways, you can really get weird with kind of doubling up those rhythms. Um and. So yeah, I could jam on this for quite a bit, and then I could also bring in, uh, I could also bring in other voices because I don't have, I haven't brought in the other oscillators, the modulation oscillators for e- either of these. So I could bring in, you know, like a drone for one of them. pitches on the modulation oscillator, with the 2.18, the keyboard, so something I'm able to do by hand and come up with stuff, uh, which is always nice. Uh, from here, I could uh, turn up the delay, and if I get this to feedback. Got this cool feedback generator now. Uh, so I can pile on more um, more reverb, get more, more vibe out of it. Um, also with the uh, preset voltage source that I have set up to control the delay time, that can also control its pitch basically. So by switching one of those, I can change uh, this feedback drone. Um, I also have the modulation oscillator's um, second output on the 259 going into the uh, modulation uh, input on the delay unit. So if I turn that up, it can get kind of nasty. It's kind of fun. yeah, I got this drone stuff that I could go on and on with. Um, And then, that'll kind of just lead me to my last part, which I'll kind of come out of this. (laughs) I don't know if it'll be that graceful. So moving along in the MARF, I have the last four stages dedicated uh, to this last section, uh, which uses all four voices. I've got a a four-note delay line with the the Easel's complex oscillator. Um, I also have that triggering um, the five-step sequencer um, on the easel, but that's going into the 259's um, modulation oscillator, so if I bring that up making kind of chords with that. Uh, using the Marf further, I don't have any envelopes going into um, into the low pass gate that I have the modulation oscillator going through, so I could use the reference out. And have it more rhythmic in time, with kind of hits following along with those changes. Um, I can then bring in the um, the other modulation oscillator on the Easel and have that hooked up to pitch. So bring that up a bit. Probably out of tune now. so if I had my tuning t- t- right I, I could jam along with that um, I also have the last oscillator the uh, principal side of the uh, 259 um, so I put a modulation on there I can bring that down and that's kind of just cycling through the same four notes that the other. Uh, complex oscillator on the easel is using um yeah so i can bring up more reverb and uh could jam along with that so yeah fun lots of possibilities with this um what i didn't even dig into what i could do i just kind of wanted to stretch out all the 16 steps i had on on this marf um uh this because you can save um, patches on the Marf or settings, um, you know. I could have this saved and I could um, move on to another patch and have a whole other um, sixteen steps to play with. So I could do longer sequences or kind of change it up any way I want. So the Marf is definitely kind of the uh, the the heartbeat behind this patch. Um, I think what's probably Lacking, uh, it's definitely my uh, my lack of a source of uncertainty. Uh, I was using any random coming from the easel, and that's being clocked by one of the function generators. But it'd be nice to have different types of um, uh, different types of random, and also that I can clock separately from different sources. So, like in that first section where the um, the two clocks aren't synced, it'd be nice if they each could trigger their own um, random. Um, and then I did have to do some repatching with this um, here and there. It would be nice if I had like a CV processor that would um, that I could uh, go um, mix between different CV sources. So if I wanted to go from random to a function generator uh, to like affect a tamper or something like that, um, I could do that more easily. But uh, but yeah, pretty minimal patching and have a lot at my fingertips, and uh, this was a lot of fun. So uh, thanks for tagging along.
0: What I perceived as a limitation became a liberation once I realized I was confined. This master patch has turned my Bukla composition on its head. On my other synthesizers, I'll sit down with a composition in mind. I hear a melody in my head. I put together and based on a song structure, I use traditional composition techniques. I use sequencers and arrange, and I end up with something that is a vision realized. With my bukhla, I don't do that. I like to patch it. I like the tactile experience of plugging patch cables in. I follow the sound as I start turning knobs, putting cables in places, and I hit the preset, the save preset button. It's sort of like clicking like on Facebook. When I'm done with something on my Buchla, I pull all the cables out, and I move on to the next thing. And whatever I created, if it's not recorded, it's lost forever. But approaching this master patch forced me to think beyond just the next patch cable. It's more like a game of chess, there's an end game. And I need to be able to leverage this same patch over and over and over. I also need to fully understand it, so that I can anticipate what's going to happen when I make a change or when I make a new preset that's based on it. It's been amazing. What I've discovered is that the presets that I create from this master patch are greater than the sum of their parts. There are two presets that I'm playing today. This first preset is based on, or an inspiration, inspired by science fiction horror soundtracks of the 80s, like James Horner's Aliens. The second preset is inspired by Space Music and Tangerine Dream's Phaedra. This patch is set up with the brain of the Studio H control and signal router. This module is two matrix mixers, one for audio and one for CV. There are six inputs and five outputs per section. All of my control voltage sources and all of my audio sources are routed through this module. I only have one declared connection from a module to another that doesn't go through the control signal router. And that is a pulse output from the 251E to the 281E for a particular sequence. The 223E tactile input port with its touch plate controller is how I'm sending CV into the modules through the control and signal router. I do very little actual mechanical interaction with the with the modules while I'm playing this. Occasionally, I need to adjust volume of something, but I tend to not modulate with this Master Patch. I let all the modulation occur within the modules themselves. And the reason for that is because with using this base patch, this Master Patch, I can create new presets that have those interesting and different modulations in them. But then, of course, if I'm performing live, I can twiddle knobs, make changes during the performance, and then be able to go back to the preset just the way it was when I started. So if I perform this same piece twice, it starts from the same point. That's one of the wonderful things about the preset management bus in the Buchla 200E. For these two presets, I'm using three sound sources. The Buchla Complex Waveform Generator 261E, the Bukla 259E Twisted Waveform Generator, and the Studio H Dual Programmable Oscillator, also known as the 258E. For control voltage sources, I'm using the Bukla 251E Quad Sequential Voltage Source, the Bukla Tactile Input Port 223E, the Keane Association Quad Trans-Event Generator 282E, and, of course, the Studio H control and signal router. Audio modulation is provided by the Buchla 285E frequency shifter balanced modulator and the Buchla 291E triple morphing filter. CV is routed through the control and signal router to all of the different destinations. The 281E, the quad, uh, quad function generator, and the 292E dynamics manager send things out to the 227E system interface. One important detail is that the 227E has two channel outputs from it, A and B, or one and two. They go to the front. A and B are the front, C and D are the back, because this is a quad mixer. I have one channel going to one set of effects, and the other channel going to a different set of effects. I got that idea from Steve Horlick. Who was on our show last month? So there's no stereo panning for this because I didn't set that up. But I'm if you can imagine in my DAW, I have a delay on one channel and a reverb on another, and I mix them inside the 227E, which I could also do with CV. What you're hearing right now is the drone on preset one. This is the 259E with modulation at audio rate and it's morphing between the two different timbre sections using a triangle-shaped function from the 282 Quad Trans Event Generator. The next timbre that goes on this preset is the really squelchy, interesting filter sweep on the 261E. So a bass sequence. The combination of the slow modulation of the morph on the 259E and the somewhat lumbering, loping baseline of the with the short pulses from the 251E is supposed to build some tension. And then there's an interruption by this very loud and squelched sound from the 291E filter with the resonance turned pretty far up. Through the control and signal router to the frequency input of the 291E and the frequency input of the balanced modulator section of the 285E. The 261E's audio output is routed through the triple morphing filter, which is and the output of the triple morphing filter 291E is routed back into the control and signal router and then routed to the 292E. Is A section. The pulse output from the 251E is routed into the control and signal router, and then sent to the A section of the, 290, of the 281E, and that gives us this envelope. The 251E's. Pulse output is also going directly to the 281E on the B section for that lumbering, loping percussion. and the temporal characteristics of that morph. Adds a bit of tension. So this piece is slow and dark and moody with some piercing interruptions by that high-frequency filter, high resonance. So that's what Preset 1 sounds like. Now, I've I've made some changes on the knobs, but I'm not going to save any of those. Now I'm going to jump straight to Preset 2. In this patch, the 259E is serving a similar function as in the previous preset, but now the modulation is at a low rate instead of an audio rate. The Morph function is again modulated by the 282E, but rather than a simple triangle function, this is a more complex waveform that I've drawn, and it has a 17-second end-to-end time series, so it takes a full 34 seconds for the wave to go to the front and then backwards. The Tangerine Dream Phaedra style sequence is the 258E with some slight FM and the sequence is running at 180 beats per minute with an eighth note interval. The 261E is running through the Frequency Shifter 285E in the Balanced Modulator section, I'll bring that up. The location on the 223E input controller controls the frequency of the balanced modulator. is outputting a different control voltage value to set pitch on the 261E. changes in the the performance to change some of the characteristics of these different sounds. First, I want to transpose this uh, 8-step sequence. So I'm going to do that with the control and signal router. Changing the, by attenuating the output of the control and signal router, I'm able to transpose that sequence down. I'm not exactly how many sure how semit- many semitones that is, but I think you can hear it. That's very Phaedra-like. When I created this patch, I didn't set out to make it sound like *Tangerine Dreams*. And Phaedra. Instead wanted to have something coming out of the 251E to make sure that the pulses were being routed properly and all that stuff. So I just chose some kind of random CV values and ended up with this. And then I discovered by modulating or attenuating the CV on the controlled signal router, I was able to accomplish that Christoph Franck sound of um, sequencing. A couple of small changes just to see how this patch can evolve in a performance while still maintaining all of the same patch cables. So I'll just change a couple of parameters like the uh, wave shape on the 25090s modulation oscillator. sounds pretty good. I could save that. I don't want to. I want to keep these presets all the same way they are. But what I can do now is I'm going to go back to Preset 1, and I'm going to make a copy of that and put it into Preset Stored 3. So this is the exact same preset as in 1, but is now stored in its own section. So we can take this master patch, using preset 1 as an inspiration, and start doing some interesting and different things. control and signal router is it has a randomized function now i don't know exactly what's going to happen but i'm going to randomize all of the um, routing of the audio and i'm going to do the same for the cv Just hit randomize over and over. And end up with all kinds of different sounds just by changing the the routing of the um, CV and audio. So again, I'm not changing any patch cables with this. I'm just changing the, I'm just pressing random to get different CV values and audio values. 3-7-1. (laughs) 3 one That's actually pretty fun. follow where things were going. Now I can tell you a couple of things I discovered here. One, the placement of the control signal router would be... I'm kind of sensitive to that now because it's really hard to see when I'm looking at it because the cables are in the way. And I have to trace the cable from it. So I think using graph paper and charting out the routings would be really helpful here because while I know what's going on, if you were to ask me what's coming out of A or what's coming out of 1 and what's going into A, I'd have to go and look at my notebook to find out because it, it's not obvious. I also tried to, min- by trying to minimize stacking, I realized that the decisions I made about routing became somewhat of an albatross around my neck. So I'm routing pulse from the um, CV out of the two control and signal router and it's going to section A on the 281E. But if I and now I and I have pulse coming out of the two places, the 223E and the 251E. So I've kind of ran out of options there because I needed the pulse to go to two different places. So I, had, I did have to stack the pulse output from the 251E to section B of the 281E. But I think with a little bit of, of planning, I could work around that problem, that limitation. I feel like there are a lot of really great possibilities with this Master Patch. There are some things that I would change, of course, for example, I feel like there are some real opportunities in the triple Morphing filter to use its stage advance, its built-in sequencer, to really add some compelling characteristics to the patches that are using the 291E, like this one. So if it advanced on a pulse, or if it had a repeating sequence on its own, that would be really interesting. I'd also like to route more signals into the triple Morphing filter so one way I could potentially do that is by using the submixer in the 227E or having dedicated routings from the different oscillators directly to the 291E. But I found that that is somewhat limiting because another, like of the second preset, I didn't use the 291E at all. I can see how, from this experience, that if I were to ha- have a more focused set of modules that were designed around, or selected around, what I wanted all of my my musical style to be, that this would be a very rich and fulfilling way to compose music on the Gukla. Um Richard Lanehart is legendary for that. And of course, Suzanne Chiani has the same essential patch from performance to performance and she knows that one by heart so she was able to route the cables every every time she performs. One limitation of this experience that I kind of didn't like is that I became beholden to the control and signal router's capabilities. While that that limitation was excellent for this exercise I do feel very strongly that I would not be able to make it the brain of my patch going forward. I would need to have more thought on my part about where I wanted things to route and only have things going through the control and signal router that I wanted to change on preset switch. Another thing I would do going forward if I were going through this exercise again is I would take advantage of the Quad Control Voltage Processor. By routing through that, I could get a lot more control and flexibility over the control voltages without having to depend on the Control and Signal Router so much. So, for example, I could route multiple radio sections of the 223E through the Control Voltage Processor before sending that into the to control and signal router to go to its various destinations. And then of course that would give me the flexibility to stack directly from the 254E control voltage processor into other things. And while I chose specifically to limit the amount of cable stacking for this segment, there's nothing stopping me from stacking cables a mile high if that's what I want to do. So while making this patch was difficult for me in a lot of ways, ultimately, I'm really pleased with how it turned out. And I think that I'm going to unplug all of these cables, sit down, think about what I want to accomplish, get out a piece of graph paper, and start mapping out how I want my modules to connect to each other with control voltage and audio. And then I'll implement that on the 200E. See how that sounds go back, make more compositional changes, with the goal of having that master patch that I can use on a complete album. I have to say that the thing about the Bukla To D, its preset manager, I never really took advantage of it in the ways that I think Don intended until I did this master patch. And now I I just can't imagine living without it. It's more than a like button now.
1: All right. Today on the show, we have Barry Schrader. Barry, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So, I think I came across uh, you and 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 your uh, I don't know I guess we'd refer to it as the, the the seminal Buchla piece uh, Lost Atlantis uh, pretty early on when kind of getting into Buchla. So um, I've always kind of looked to this album in in high regard. But before we get into that, let's kind of back up and. I'm kind of curious um, where your journey with Buchla first started.
3: Well, um, I'd been in music since I started taking piano lessons when I was five. So I've always been involved with music. But I was a graduate student at University of Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. and I was in musicology. They didn't have a composition program there. And um, they decided that they wanted to open up and that they were going to bring in Mort Zabotnik, who was at that point teaching at NYU. And they made an arrangement where he would come in twice a week, excuse me, twice a month for three days a week. And they made me his assistant and when they set the studio up, they really put me in charge of the studio. So that was a Buchla 100 system, one that was built by CBS because Don Buchla had already sold the 100 system to CBS okay. in I think uh, 1968. And so, essentially, what happened was Mort would spend time with me, and then. I was expected to teach everybody else, and so I pretty much had the the studio to myself whenever I wanted it. So that's when I started working uh, with the uh, Buchla 100, and that would probably be uh, early 69.
1: Okay, and like, had you known of that system and more kind of before this?
3: Yeah, well, I knew of his recordings, and even though I was in musicology, uh, I was mostly interested in contemporary music, alongside of medieval music. I know it sounds Mm. strange, but those are my my two main interests. You know, yin and yang. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. sounds
0: perfectly normal to me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, yeah, I knew about Mort, I knew of his recordings, and a lot of other recordings of uh, electroacoustic music. I mean, the, f- the first time I ever heard electroacoustic music was was when I was 10, and I went to see Forbidden Planet, which I sat mm. through three times until my father came and gone and dragged me out of the field. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's interesting that later on, much later on, B.B. Barron became one of my closest friends. Oh wow. And, uh so but that was my first experience with uh electronic music. And I I kept searching it out and there were a few recordings that were available in the uh 50s. Uh like some things from Hank Bodings and uh but there there wasn't too much. It was hard especially because I was living in a small town in Pennsylvania, it wasn't that easy to get stuff, but I would go to Pittsburgh. They had a big Sam goodies, and I would look through <laughs> stuff there so and then my father bought me a tape recorder when I was I think eleven, and I started fooling around, you know, cutting and splicing, so I didn't have any kind of formal background before I got to the one hundred, but um, I was really extremely interested to. To get going with it.
1: And what were your compositions like on that 100 system?
3: Awful. I mean, (laughs) uh, I was, you know, I was just, I was just learning. Mm -hmm. And um, as good as Mort was using the system, he's a kind of the seat of the pants guy. He didn't know a lot I think about the technical details. CBS had published a little manual. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, that was done by Hubert Howe. And mm, yeah. it didn't have a lot of technical. It was just a, a like a, a paperback, you know, eight and a half mm-hmm. by 11 brochure. But it did have pictures of the modules and some basic descriptions and a lot of, you know patching references so okay. that was a big help um and then i you know i would look up what i could about things like you know am and fm to try to understand technically what was going on because again i was supposed to to teach it to other people at the university
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds uh that sounds like quite the task when <laughs> here's this new piece of technology you need to figure it out and then be the expert <laughs> on it. <laughs> wow. Um and so then after that you um how did kind of then moving to the west coast uh come well, about?
3: Well, mort uh was hired as uh the the dean of the composition faculty at uh CalArts and that was supposed to go into its first year in 1970 Mm -hmm. and so he suggested you know that i come out and be part of the program there i finished my ma in musicology at pitt in uh the spring of uh 1970 and then i moved to um to la and i was a Technically, I was a student the first year at Cal Arts. Uh, got mm-hmm. an MFA in '71, and Mel Powell hired me on the faculty, and I was there for 45 years.
1: Wow, what was uh was it a bit of a, a culture shock moving out to the West Coast at that time?
3: Well, it was um, it was a strain. The first year of Cal Arts was something that. I think very few people get to experience, which is <laughs> almost pure anarchy. Uh, <laughs> the building in Valencia was not finished. And so they hired a def- the buildings of a defunct Catholic girls' school called Via Cabrini in Burbank, which was mostly destroyed by the earthquake in February of 71. So mm. for the fall semester, which which did take place at Via Cabrini. Um, It was sort of like almost no one was in charge. I mean, people were doing uh, things exactly as they wanted to do. And um, I actually held the Bukla class at midnight twice (laughs) a week. (laughs) No, but because I'm a night person. Nobody said anything, and the kids didn't seem to mind. So um, there were strange things like that that went on, but the music school, uh, music school had to move up to Valencia, even though the buildings weren't finished in February after the earthquake in seventy-one, because uh, that uh, the part of the buildings that we were using collapsed, so they weren't mm-hmm. useful anymore. So it was it was a it was a huge change because I was used to kind of traditional university life, which is extremely, you know, regulated. And uh, then all of a sudden you have this kind of extremely free and open and very liberal Mm -hmm. kind of atmosphere. And it was sort of like one big family um, during during that period. I think it was like, you know, the, the end of the, the the sixties, uh, the whole kind of collective hippie sort of uh, yeah. you know a movement had sort of came to fruition, but once we got to Valencia, things started to change into more of a normal school because you you can't let anarchy go on very long. <laughs>
1: yeah, doesn't doesn't tend to last for very long. That's true. Um. So so what so okay, so you're you're um giving night school classes and then you were also this this was a new system that you were working on. No,
3: this was still the again,
1: right? this was oh, still okay. the
3: one hundred. Now Mort got delivery of the two hundred in I think around uh November of nineteen seventy and he had it at his house. That was the first one that Don had finished. And so um, I did get to use it. Uh, I babysat his kids for a week. Oh, he and his <laughs> wife took a vacation. <laughs> so I got to use uh, the, the 200 during that period, but I didn't really get to, uh, um, you know, use it to any great extent until it was installed in the Valencia studios in, uh, 1971.
1: Okay. And, um, I guess, what was your impression of the changes coming, coming from the, the 100 to the 200?
3: Well, I thought they were incredible. Uh, there were so many more types of modules and there were so many different things that you could do with it um that i thought the possibilities were extremely extended just as one example the uh, quad locator mm-hmm. uh which allowed you know you to because we were doing everything four channel in those days and the quad locator allowed you to specifically locate um a sound i mean each corner had an address the Buchla system on the positive side is you know zero to fifteen volts, so yeah. if I remember correctly the the front left was zero zero front right zero fifteen and rear right was um zero. fifteen zero, zero or fifteen zero and then fifteen fifteen for the uh left uh, left rear gotcha. Uh, So that was a big thing. And then the control voltage uh, processors um, would allow for creating more controlled, uh, you know, excuse me, more complicated control voltages. Mm -hmm. And so there, there were a lot of changes and I thought the quality of the uh, oscillators were much better also.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything came with a, um, much more control. I guess that's what I found digging into the 100 system a, a, a bit more. Um, yeah, not a lot of CB control over much. No, <laughs> no. no. So um, yeah, where it just kind of really exploded with that 200 system. Um, so so Mort was at the school. Was there anybody else like teaching or, or kind of coming through at that time?
3: Uh, Well, we had a lot of guests, uh, especially for the first 15 years of the school. Um, Almost uh, anybody you could think of that was well-known in contemporary music, not necessarily so much electronic or electroacoustic music, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, uh, Cage was there, Berio was there. These are people that would you know, come in and out. Earl Brown spent a lot of time there. Of course, Mel Powell was there, and he had set up the studio at Yale. But at that point in the 70s, I think he was losing interest in um, electronic music. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, There were there were several other people. I mean, I I didn't make. I don't have a list in front of me. But <laughs> sure. there, there were there were uh, a lot of visitors. But I would say that primarily most of the stuff was taught by myself and
1: Mort. Mm-hmm. Was was Alan Strange around during that time? Well, uh,
3: he wasn't a Cal Arts. Okay, but, but I knew I knew Alan. And uh, and I knew of his work and um, presented several of his pieces either on a concert series I ran in the 70s at the Theater Vanguard in mm-hmm. West Hollywood, or uh, occasionally I would do radio shows on KPFK. So I, I did know uh, Alan, and, uh, but he was not at uh, CalArts.
1: Okay.
2: Gotcha. So you
0: you were I was kind of thinking a lot about you know, as you were talking about teaching and trying to put my mind back into what it would have been like, you know, to grow up in a world where electronic music was something that was very new. And so what was the what was a syllabus and curriculum like for your classes? You have people coming into the fine arts tradition, you have oscillators that can't track pitch. So you know there's no equal temperament how did you what was the what was well, the class actu-
3: like? actually uh well, let's get to the oscillator thing later uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the, fair. Uh, um the the setup in uh, the composition program was that the majors would have classes each week one in composition, which is usually like a seminar, people talking about um their work or me analyzing. Uh, somebody's uh, pieces, uh, a, and then a, a, a separate class that dealt primarily with analysis, and then a third that dealt with technology. And then very early on, Mao asked me to develop a class in the history of electronic music. And mm. uh, that's what my book uh, that was published in 81, 82 came out of the uh introduction to electroacoustic music so uh we i just made things up i didn't have a precedent to follow so i just made up what what i thought was practical for the students and um it, it seemed to work because there were a lot of people in the classes and uh they they seem to have turned out all right. A lot of composers <laughs> that are now, you know, still practicing went through classes in, in those days.
1: Mm-hmm. And so was it kind of, it almost feel like real time teaching because you're learning the, this new system as you're going and then.
3: Well, I I think by, uh, let's say by 72, I think I had pretty well um, grasp. figured everything out. Mm -hmm. And uh, along with the the, the technical, you know, aspects. And so I don't think I had a a problem there. But I'm not sure I ever taught the same class the same way twice. (laughs) Because um, I would try to think of ways of improving stuff. But one of the things that was always important to me was a, a background in the literature and analysis, I mean, even at that point, uh, when for most people it was considered a new area of musical activity, you could go back into the the 40s and deal with a tradition that had been continuously ongoing since Pierre Schaeffer in 1948. So there was actually a lot to uh, analyze and talk about, and so uh, I didn't have a problem in that regard. I guess the it was just constantly trying to figure out the best way to relay the the information to to people. And mm-hmm. in, in terms of learning the equipment, I would um, you know actually demonstrate a certain kind of patch. And then have the students in the class one by one go up and actually do it right then and there in the class. And eventually, by the end of the class, um, they had to physically take the system apart, all the modules, and put them back together. So I felt it was a a pretty uh, complete, uh, I don't mean take the modules apart, (laughs) take take the system, you know, the modules out of the system and put them back in in the order they were before and make sure they understood, you know, all the technicalities of um, putting a studio together. Mm. So I felt that it was for, the t- for that time, you know, relatively complete. And it also included dealing with the use of tape recorders. We had two and four channel uh, tape recorders at that point.
1: And I'm curious when you talk about like having the students pull the thing apart and put it back together, um, you know, with it being a, a modular system and you can kind of place things where you, where you, you, you know, kind of where you want, but there seems to be a bit of an architecture that Don might've had in, in mind of how things should kind of go. Did you, did you kind of set that up in the system of like how, where things should be placed or
3: no, we left it. I, pretty much the same way that uh, they were delivered. Don actually delivered them mm-hmm. and uh, put them together. There were two, we had two large 200 systems. And uh, then occasionally, like with the fortune modules, I mean, I would add extra stuff for my own work, and you could you could bring, you know, take some from one room, into another if you wanted. But the point of me having the students do that was so that they uh, would be able to set up a studio themselves, Mm -hmm. either, you know, in their own home, or if they were hired, you know, someplace to to work, so that that there wouldn't be something that would be unfamiliar, or foreign to them in terms of dealing with things on that yeah. level it didn't go into the area of you know actually building or repairing or anything we had it sure uh john Payne was our technical engineer and he handled all of that and he did teach classes in electronics and building. so if the students were interested in that you know they they could take that class
1: gotcha so for your own music at the time, um what like kind of did you start to have enough time to start developing your own um kind of techniques as a composer?
3: Yes. Well, I spent a lot of time in the studio and uh and then in the summers, well, in the early years that they did try summer school, but then they gave it up in the the middle 70s but Mm -hmm. i would say the big thing about uh moving from composing for instruments or live performers to dealing with the the buchla and creating electronic music was a, a really different way of thinking and the best term i can think of is gestalt So that Mm -hmm. if with with an analog system uh, because of the physicality you're setting things up yourself you, you start to think in terms of gestalts rather than in terms of specific combinations of you know pitches or traditional harmony or counterpoint or whatever so. Uh, so things like timbre became extremely important to me
1: and mm-hmm. the
3: idea that I could in, in those days I used the, the term timbral transformation that I could create um, a particular timbre and have it transform into something completely different in real time was an important part of my compositional thinking so I think that a lot of people in those days, if you look at their instrumental music, their style changes pretty drastically when they get uh, to just working with the bukla. I think Mort's a good example of that. If you could see his really early instrumental work, even stuff he wrote as a composer,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, it was uh, some of it was serial. It was certainly pointillistic, and when he got into using the uh, the bookla, even the the one hundred, I think his perspective changed dramatically. I didn't know him then, like in sixty seven uh, mm-hmm. or early sixty eight, but I if you look at the printed music and you listen to the early electronic music. You can hear a big difference, and I think that it affected other people as well. Pauline Oliveros is another example. If you were to compare her uh, early written music to what she uh, did in the San Francisco Tape Music Center, is a really mm-hmm. big difference. So I think it affected me that way uh, very greatly. And one of the when I switched over to computers in... 8384 um i had a hard time initially because i had to move back and analyze the gestalts that i had been working with in order to recreate the same kind of um material mm-hmm. through you know bits and pieces as it were because with a computer, you have to specify everything. You can't just patch some things together and and make uh, a sound. So, uh, yeah, I would say that the uh, the 200 uh, or the just working with analog equipment in general uh, informed my work greatly and changed my way of thinking. And uh, I think that's still true of, of what I've been doing since then.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um what I guess what's specifically in that 200 system like helped you achieve what you're going for
3: Well okay let's get back to the oscillator thing <laughs> Um I know that the the 100 oscillators were not at all stable I know that The 200 oscillators would drift but um be I, i've because they had two control voltage inputs into mm-hmm. each oscillator um it was possible to, to to tune them and when i mean tune i wasn't sometimes i would bring in uh you know a, a frequency counter to, to
1: mm-hmm.
3: if i was doing something that needed to be in a traditional scale. But I would mostly tune stuff together by using sawtooths just to get them to the point where they would stop phasing. And Mm -hmm. that would be the zero point. And then um, moving the control voltages uh, would, would take them out from that point. And that's how... Through fooling around with that is how I developed the the patch that um, I used in Los Atlantis, but I first used in, in Trinity, where I have five oscillators that move from a unison to a five-octave spread. So these are set up to move both. It's hard for people to understand, I know. But one set of control voltages would move them in parallel motion and another would move them in contrary motion. And you can, the very beginning of Trinity Mm -hmm. is a demonstration of that patch, period. You hear it, it moves from a unison to a five octave spread. It goes through all of the machinations that happen in between because it moves relatively slowly and then it snaps back to Mm -hmm. a unison. So I was, I got, you know, very good at tuning stuff that way. And in fact, that would be the way I would start almost everything. I used that patch through the rest of my work with uh, the Buchla 200. And the first thing I'd do would be to set that up. And then eventually I used a volt ohm meter to record voltages to two digits, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, two decimal places. And I found I was able to literally recreate any patch um, essentially perfectly, uh, even though it had been torn down when the last time I used it. So I think that, a lot of people's negativity towards at least the 200 oscillators is not exactly well-founded. Um, I, I didn't see a problem with it. And I remember uh, several people, Mel Powell being one of them, would ask me, how do you tune this stuff? Because when he would hear the, the results of what I was doing and, you know, I would explain to them the processes that I would, would go through so i didn't eventually have uh problems in that regard and i think that the possibilities were better than uh a lot of people thought but of course they weren't locked you couldn't lock those oscillators together like you could in some other later systems
1: mhm mhm yeah that that first part in trinity it's it's I don't know I've, I've listened to it many 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 times so it, it's just so arresting and and I have seen your kind of your little diagram um that you made at some point and it's actually in the it's in the cd booklet too that right. I got um that kind of shows that and um yeah it's really interesting maybe with your permission we'll we'll display that quick snap or something here to to give people an idea who maybe haven't heard it
3: And I would say the the quad locator was another thing. Uh, Okay. There's a a movement in um, Lost Atlantis, the Dance of the Gods section where, uh, I mean, you can't hear it in quad, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, which is too bad because I figured out a way um, I could only record one or two of the quote unquote instruments. I mean, they are timbres I made up at a time but every time they sound they move to another channel and i could use the quad locator to do that very precisely setting up on the 16 position sequencer voltages that would go into the x y inputs of uh one of the locator channels Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, that was not something you could do with uh, with the 100. But of course, you can't really you, you can't get that kind of effect when it's mixed into stereo. May, maybe a little bit, but yeah. Um, so that I don't, I that I think was pretty interesting. And um, let's see, uh, I I get oh well the. The 10-channel, uh, there was a 10-channel filter that became very useful because John Payne um, developed a really, really narrow filter that we could use to create control tracks. Hmm. These are not things you would hear, but they there would be just usually sine tones at a particular frequency, Mm -hmm. that you could use to um, generate something to happen, you know, an attack or whatever. And so you could record a bunch of these. um, And with this filter that John Payne uh, developed, it was you had to get the exact frequency. You could bring just uh, you put as many as 10 different ones on one Mm -hmm. one track. Of a tape recorder, bring that in through the one channel of the of the filter. After bringing it through uh-huh. his filter, anyway, it, it gave us a lot of possibilities of external control that you could pre-record.
1: Actually, yeah.
3: but I was never able to. Uh, all of my uh, analog stuff, the final master is at least third or fourth generation. Because I used so many tracks that I, there was no way I could just record something. And that was, you know, the end of it. it was it's a lot of mixed downs.
1: Gotcha. So so you weren't necessarily perf- performing these. Uh, or did, yeah, did you do any performances with the system?
3: Uh, well, it's funny you ask that. Uh, in, I think it was 1972, there was an AES convention. Um, in uh, L.A., mm-hmm. and um, I I don't know how what had happened. Somebody called Mort, and he came to me and said, uh, "This is like in the afternoon." He said, uh, "Let's go down to uh, the the convention. They want us to do uh like a real time, you know." Presentation uh, okay. using the two hundreds, so and they were they were awful to move because they weighed a ton in those <laughs> cabinets. So we got we got a bunch of students, uh, in, and Serge Cherupine was in on that. By the way, mm. uh, he played the violin. I'm oh, I was never quite sure what and what that was exactly, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so Morton, I did uh, a real time demo uh lasted about a half hour i think and uh it was just an improvisation i mean we didn't talk about what we were going to do we just sat down and he started doing something i did something and somehow it meshed serge played the violin (laughs) and uh it got written up in the the newspaper and there was a there was a big crowd and we actually had talked about you know doing some improv recordings for a commercial thing, but it never happened. So I also did uh, um, real-time setups where it would be self-propelling, so to speak. In other words, it it was just be an automated patch. self-generating kind of. Yeah, it could go on forever in a day. And I would do those. I called them, I think... Uh, uh, electronic music boxes, uh, I guess ripping off Don's uh, <laughs> idea a little bit. And I did four or five of those um, over many years at CalArts. I think there's a re- even a recording of one in my archive at CalArts, but I, uh, hmm. I don't think I saved much of that stuff.
1: Bummer. Well, I'm going to have to try and dig that up. That'd be interesting to to check out. Was um was Don kind of coming, was he visiting the school periodically? Uh, well,
3: it's funny. He was uh, listed as uh, an adjunct something or other uh, for the first couple years at CalArts. And CalArts uh, paid for the R&D for, um, I think, part of the 200 but certainly mm. for the 500 which never was successful unfortunately. Yeah. And um so he would come there very very occasionally. Mm-hmm. But not not a lot. Uh I would say if he was there once a year for the you know in the first six or seven years I would say that would be about the most he would have come there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly, uh, they either mortar. Usually, John Payne would just, you know, send him packages of things that needed to be repaired, or if they needed schematics or something, John Payne would contact
1: him. Mm-hmm. And you got you got tapped to, like, give a demo. On yeah, the
3: demo. in the early seventies, uh, Yamaha had sent. Uh, one of their people, his name was Fukushi Kawakami, to Cal Arts. Uh, he spent uh, two years there and he, he wasn't on the faculty or anything like that. He was just a kind of a visitor that Yamaha wanted there. And I think they wanted to learn about the 200. And while he was there, he uh, taught himself electronics. As well as English, he's quite a brilliant guy, mm. and um, he built four modules. He asked me because he wanted to practice building electronics if there were any modules that didn't exist and uh, that he would bu- build for me. So he built me what are now referred to as the Fortune modules because that was his nickname. I don't I don't remember how he got it. Mm-hmm. But he built me um, the uh, first analog shift register. I know there's a lot of argument over that, but I'm pretty sure that <laughs> this was the first one that was ever built. Uh, two different control voltage smoothers and a uh, control voltage matrix gate. These are things I asked him to to design. And uh, then I think he went back and reported to Yamaha and about, I don't know, six, eight months after that, they contacted Don. They wanted to look at the 200 to see if they were interested in buying it. I think Don was thinking, you know, he sold the 100 to CBS. Maybe he could sell the 200 to Mm -hmm. Yamaha. So um, Don asked me to do the demo for the executives from Yamaha down at uh, Buena Park their headquarters in southern california so i did that but they uh ended up not being interested and went with the uh, uh you know chownings uh research to develop the uh, digital x design equipment
1: gotcha did you feel a lot of like pressure to um like did he did he ask for any kind of like or give you any composition notes or anything like that of, of what he you was trying Don? to think about. Yeah, yeah. Well,
3: Don was with me. I I picked him up at the airport with the system in my okay. car, and we drove down to the Yamaha headquarters. And I went into a was a regular meeting room. There was about ten executives from Yamaha. He didn't say, no. He didn't tell me anything. Um, I was used to demonstrating it. So
1: sure, I
3: really, and I don't know, maybe it was, I I really didn't feel any pressure. Uh, I just, you know, demonstrated as much as I could within, I think they gave me 30 or 40 minutes Mm. and they asked some questions and Don and I answered them and that was, that was pretty much it.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I was, he's like, don't screw this up for me. (laughs) (laughs) well uh
3: he was i don't know if you knew don at all no he was was an unusual person in some regards he uh it's not that he wouldn't speak his mind if he didn't feel like it but he he was usually you know uh pretty quiet yeah close to the best and uh he and I didn't end up being the best of friends because (laughs) when I was running that series at the theater Vanguard in West Hollywood, I came up with an idea to do an exhibition, um, at uh, the Pacific design center. What, what, what has been known as the blue whale. They had never done any exhibitions before. Mm. And so I, I came up with an idea to do, uh, a an exhibition of of analog equipment as much as I could get and so uh, I had several people on board for it and the the uh, Pacific Design Center was willing to open up and do it mm-hmm. and I kept pressing Don to get uh, you know to commit to it and he got ticked off by me asking him I guess one too many times <laughs> and um that was around 76 or so and after that he and I had almost no contact whatsoever
1: gotcha did um did you kind of keep in touch with more I mean how long was he kind of working well mort, uh,
3: well, mort didn't retire until uh of uh, I think around two thousand four or five. Oh, okay. So, so he was there, but he would take off. Uh, sometimes he was on leave, uh, so he wasn't always there. Um, so I, during the the two thousands, especially when I switched over from to uh, you know MIDI based systems and computers, mm-hmm. um, I was the one that that designed the, the studios then and set that up. But I wanted to keep a 200 system around uh, because I felt that it was really useful for students to understand the physical patching that was now being representative, you know, in, in terms of um, the the way designs were being done. Like, like mm-hmm. in the uh, X system, the Yamaha, any of the of the X designs, because I don't think students understood the abstraction. I mean, it, it was it was a sort of an abstraction to them yeah. of what was going going on. And if they actually would patch an analog system, they would know what what that was. Mm-hmm. But I lost. I sort of lost eventually. Um, People didn't want to use the analog stuff, and it was all sold, unfortunately. And then about 10 years later, analog started to get hot again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, everybody was sorry that the 200 was, was the gone. stuff was gone. They got a couple of surge systems, which, of course, were developed at CalArts. Uh, CalArts paid for the R&D for that, too. Oh. Uh, and uh the surge systems are if you know the two hundred, the surge systems are not very foreign to you, I think.
1: hmm. Yeah, I, I I tend to keep my blinders on. Um <laughs> and uh because, you know, the the pocketbook will get even more lighter somehow i don't, oh, I don't yes. know how that could then happen if i really start to go down the search uh rabbit hole but uh you know that'll be some other time for some other podcast i guess okay <laughs> um going back real quick to the uh those the fortune modules um the one that you kind of explained is a bit um I think you did say to me that it's a bit hard to describe, but it was the control voltage um, matrix gate. And I was kind of wondering how you ended up using that or what its function was for you. Well,
3: that allowed me to create um, very complex control voltages, you know, not uh, some simple ADSR kind of thing. Uh, which is what I wanted to do, I needed to do in order to create these kinds of timbral transformations that I was talking about. A good example, I think, is the last movement of Lost Atlantis, the mm-hmm. destruction uh, part, or even the Atlantis shall rise, the second part of the last movement. Uh, because what you're hearing, is happening in real real time um and you're moving through transformations of timbres in multiple ways including um the the types of envelopes that are used Mm -hmm. and in fact and this was even used to create uh a kind of simulation of the Shepard tone effect that you hear in the the first part of that. So it was a way to um, be able to create and mix complicated control voltages together or, you know, bring them in quickly, uh, take them out quickly in order to change... Whatever it was that that they were controlling,
1: yeah. So kind of like a, yeah, mixer fader. And so instead of like pulling something out and repatching it,
3: right? I mean, one of the reasons that I mean now I think it, it would probably be different because you have computer control, you know, over analog systems. But one of the reasons that I ended up going to uh, computers around 83, 84 was because I just wanted to do things that were increasingly complicated in that regard. Mm-hmm. And so it was easier to just describe exactly, you know, what you wanted in terms of the the data coming from the computer yeah. than to keep stepping back Um on the Buchla system. What I mean by that is, okay, you have the oscillator. Let's just talk about frequency, but that's Mm -hmm. just one example. So you have the oscillator and it has control voltage input. And then Buchla had a control, uh, control voltage, uh, processor in which, you know, you could invert things and you could also mix things. But then I, so that's like one step back. And then the control voltage matrix gate allowed me to take two or three more steps back in order to uh, create the controls over controls over controls. Yeah, And yeah. it starts to get sort of complicated, you know, thinking about it, but there was no other way to accomplish the kinds of things, you know, that I, that I wanted to do. So it was a very useful module um for me
1: gotcha yeah i'm i'm looking forward to uh (laughs) putting the cd on after we're we're finished with (laughs) it go through that um and you you spend a little bit of time um i mean other than like composing for that uh for that recording you did a, a movie correct
3: well the first well yeah i started doing film scores i think in uh 72 the mm-hmm. but um there was a um a, a strange film done with laser lights uh from the physics department at ucla um there's a write up about it in uh american cinematographer if you go to my website there's a link to the American Cinematographer article about it because uh, it was the first film done with laser lights. And it was the first film also that had a quadraphonic electronic soundtrack. It was mm. called Death of the Red Planet. And it played along with uh, um, a concert film of Yes. I don't know if you're old enough to, <laughs> to remember that group. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that, Rel-
0: the, Relayer is one of my favorite albums.
3: Okay, the the film was called Yes Songs, and I actually have a quote from the New York Times um, uh, review. I think it was John Rockwell when he went to uh, uh, he w- he went to see the review the Yes Songs film, but he mm-hmm. came in uh, just as Red Planet was starting, and he thought that maybe that was. possible. <laughs> part of the yes songs film. And he said, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, had yes, undertaken some completely new radical, (laughs) uh, you know, concept of, uh, uh, of music and sound design creation. And he said, no, he found out it was, but anyway. um, So yeah, that was an interesting uh, project. I, I, don't know if that film even exists in its original format anymore. I mm. have the first couple minutes of that music up on my website uh, under the Death of the Red Planet. Um, I think it's in the free music category or something, but okay, uh, you can listen to it there. And um, I'm thinking of bringing out... Uh, a new album of analog works of mine that have never been commercially released. So a suite from that film music would be one of the things awesome. that uh, that I did. And then years later, um, I got a call from Roger Corman who uh, uh, <laughs> asked me to do a soundtrack for a sci-fi horror film called Galaxy of Terror which has become a kind of cult film.
0: I love that movie.
3: (laughs) And uh, that music came out on an LP uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. It sold out right away. There were three versions of it. Uh, And then the company went bankrupt. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's not available anymore. And I don't own that music. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's owned by uh, BMG and or Sony or something. So... um, I can't do anything with that music, and I don't even have the original tracks. I don't know where they are. And I did several other films that were like uh, experimental or or art films. I did one TV documentary, um, but I think the the last uh, the last couple things I did are on YouTube. The two uh, computer videos by Michael Scroggins. Uh, one is called uh, 1921 into 1989, and the other is called uh, California Dream. So those are available on YouTube. Another an interesting uh, experimental film from 1973 by Adam Beckett is also on YouTube, which is called Heavy Light. I think it's... It, he was uh, uh, one of the people that did a lot of work on um, the first Star Wars movie. Tragically, he died at the age of 29. Mm. But um, Heavy Light, I think, is his probably best film. Um, there was a DVD of his works brought out about a couple years ago. To from um, uh, an institute in LA, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of that institute now. So yeah, I've I've done. Uh, several films but I, I think the last one I did was uh nineteen eighty eighty nine nineteen ninety around there
1: mm-hmm. was that a pretty surreal phone call from um <laughs> to to get to work on the galaxy of terror well actually
3: uh, how that happened was uh, i don't know if you had ever heard of the pianist Leonid hambro. Um, he was the pianist for the New York Philharmonic. Uh, and then he became Victor Borges' partner. They toured and did a lot of work in in Vegas together in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And he was the uh, he was named the dean of the instrumental uh faculty at CalArts. And he and and his his wife and I became very very good friends. They were almost like my surrogate parents. <laughs> and um, he was at a party, and he met Roger, and uh, and Roger said he was going to do a, a new sci-fi film and wanted some electronic music. And Lee says, "Hey, we well, should call up Barry Schrader." <laughs> <laughs> it gave him my number, so he called me a couple days later. And I went in and talked to him and showed him some work I had done. And he hired me for that, for that film, which was one of the most exhausting experiences of my life. <laughs> and if you're, if you're interested in that story, uh, it's on, I'm sure you know the Matrix website. Yeah. He did a, a huge interview with me over about a year and a half. That that's almost like a, a autobiography. And I talk a lot about uh, working on that film um, in that.
1: Yeah, it seems like it kind of soured your experience uh, and <laughs> yeah, trying to that, move forward with that well, type of work. I,
3: I could, yeah, it was, it would have, I would have had to have quit my job at KellArts mm-hmm. in order to try to make it in that business. And there was no guarantees and um, I didn't feel that it was worth me taking the risk. Plus I would have had to put out an awful lot of money to have my own studio. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I was able to use KellArt Studio for that. Actually, that's the only, I think that's the only film that was ever scored with a Buchla 200. Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: it might be, yeah. Uh, uh, well, major major release anyway. I'm sure there's weird little <laughs> indie films. or something. Oh yeah, like. they,
3: yeah. There's there are small <laughs> films. I mean, like the uh, like the ones I mentioned. Yeah, uh, heavy, mm-hmm. you know, light by Adam Beckett. That was Booklet 200 also. It, but it probably uh, the
0: only major studio, you know, the, or the only major release. I'm trying. I'm racking my brain thinking about it.
3: Yeah, well, but, w- working with that kind of stuff at that point in time was, was was not easy. And uh, it was, uh, it was just an exhausting experience for me.
0: Well, it's worth, I, I recommend to listeners to watch Galaxy of Terror, you can hear Barry's soundtrack, but it's also a very Oh, how do you you know, well, it's Roger Horman. So it's a snapshot of late 70s, aesthetic and budget with um, some actors like Robert England, who went on to play Freddy Krueger. And Sid Haig, who just died um, this earlier this year, last year, so it's kind of like this weird little snapshot. And so if you're a young person, it can kind of shape your idea of, of what people were thinking about at the time. I, I love these. I love the movies from that period. Yeah. I love Roger Corman. It's so crazy.
3: Well, really, uh, Roger told me that was the most expensive movie he had ever made. Wow, uh, to that to that point, there's a lot of argument about how much. It cost. I, I don't honestly know, but he said it was the most expensive he had ever made. Yeah, it had some other uh, big stars in it Edward, Albert. Yep. Had, uh, had, had, Aaron Moran.
2: Yeah,
3: Ray, Aaron Aaron Morin. Morin. yeah right. she played
0: Joni on Happy Days. Right. And, and it had uh, um, Ray Walston. He right. was the uh, in Fast, Fast Times at Ridgemont High.
3: Yeah. Um, yep. My favorite Martian.
0: My favorite Martian, right? The TV show.
3: So uh, yeah, it was a it was a really interesting cast,
1: and this was after Aliens had or Alien had come out, right? So this was kind of yeah. yeah.
3: Well, people people say as it a it's a rip off of Alien. Some people say it's a rip off of uh, uh, Forbidden Planet.
0: A little of both, it, maybe.
3: It 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 has maybe you know some uh, relation. Mm-hmm. I it was the guys that wrote the script really wanted it to be some kind of metaphysical uh, slash horror sci-fi yeah. thing. And Roger really wanted it mostly to be horror sci-fi. <laughs> uh, I mean, the famous worm scene, uh, Roger directed himself because <laughs> the, the name director uh he didn't want to do it. Uh, was was my understanding. <laughs> and and when the movie was first uh, submitted for a rating, it got an X. Yeah, and that so they had to recut that scene because of that scene. Yeah, so the they rape, had to re- the rape scene. They had to recut it. Um, and I always suspected because that. Uh, after they recut it and they got the r roger stuck some stuff back in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he actually he's he's a you know he's a re, uh, he's still alive i haven't had any contact with him for ages but he, he was a really nice guy uh i mean i the director and other producer were very difficult to work with but i found him very nice to work with and uh uh, he, he knew exactly what he wanted. He knew who his audience was and he was in it to make a buck. And Mm
1: -hmm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, he, he, um, he's one of those folks that's had a vision for a lot of things and was very prolific and didn't necessarily want to kind of, I mean, he cared about quality, but that wasn't real. He wasn't like James Cameron or something who would spend years getting every little detail right.
3: Well, he, you know, Jay, uh, Galaxy of Terror was James Cameron's first film.
0: That's right. He was uh, like an art director or art. He, he uh, was
3: an art director, and yeah. he was also, even though he's not credited, he was a second director. <laughs> mm. and, so he
0: worked on an Alien ripoff, and then went on to work on <laughs> Aliens.
3: Uh, <laughs> right. Well, he actually. If there are people that have made comparisons to parts of Galaxy of Terror and parts of Aliens, uh, there are some ideas that you know. Uh, for instance, the the uh, you know the 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 kind of gloomy, the blue gloom of mm-hmm. the planet in um, Galaxy of Terror. He uses that and some and and some other uh, ideas. And he, he was very inventive. Yeah,
0: I will highly recommend folks watch that and um, come talk to us, send us emails about how what you think about Galaxy of Terror.
1: So I was wondering, do you still have um, like the original tapes or anything from Lost Atlantis? Um,
3: when I retired uh, in uh, a couple of years ago, after forty forty five 45 years of Arts,
1: Yeah.
3: Um, They talked me into, they said they're going to, you know, create an archive of my work. So I gave them everything that I had. I had been in the same office for 45 years. So you can imagine how much junk I collected. So uh, I did throw a, a lot of stuff away, which was not the kind of stuff that they wanted. But my master tapes are part of the... What I gave them, which was I don't know, we're talking about twenty some, maybe thirty some boxes of stuff. Yeah. So it's there at Cal Arts in the library. It has not been, you know, curated, and I don't know if it ever will be. Um, one researcher late last year had gone through some of this stuff, but of course now with the COVID nineteen situation, nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't personally have any of that stuff. I mean, I I couldn't store uh, yeah. all that stuff at home. But I I did do uh, tra- I did transfers, digital transfers, of course, which mm-hmm. is what the CD came from, uh, the one Gary Chang produced. And um, there's an earlier version on on LP on mm-hmm. Laurel Record. Okay. But uh so some of some of the stuff exists some doesn't. I mean, I tried to create uh a list that's on my website of everything that I've done, at least that I could remember or will admit to. But I know <laughs> like you asked about some of the stuff I did at Pitt. I think there may be one piece Mm. That's in that archive from that. I think the rest is lost. Although John Appleton told me a few years ago, there was, he had a copy in some archives at Dartmouth of one of those pieces, but it's not really stuff I would want people to, uh, to hear. Mm. If I do put out, uh, pull out, put out this new CD. Yeah. Or album of, of my analog stuff, it would be from 19, 72 through 1983, mm-hmm. uh, and that it would it's all B- booklet 200 stuff, but it would only be the the stuff that uh, you know that that I think is is worthy to be brought out. Yeah. There's some other stuff in that archive that, in my personal opinion, is is not good enough for public distribution. <laughs>
0: that's pretty much my entire catalog
1: <laughs> i'm just wondering if there's like any hope to uh like to hear lost atlantis in in quad i think that
3: i would cool. love to do it, it yeah. um i was thinking there's a um there's a festival that in new york the new york electroacoustic music festival um you know that's run by Hubert Howe, the guy I I mentioned that wrote that Bukla 100 uh, instruction manual. And uh, of course, this year, there's not going to be any festival. Mm -hmm. So that would be a great place to do it, but I I don't want to get into the details. It would cost an awful lot to have it produced there. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, the whole thing hasn't been presented in its original form, I think, for at least twenty twenty five years. But um, the what what I did because there was originally narration done that is based on Plato's *Critias* with a few minor changes uh, that I made um, and. That was recorded by Nicholas England, Mm -hmm. who who was the, uh, at that time, the dean of the School of Music. And he has just an incredible voice. Yeah. So I remastered those from the four-channel original, uh, the digital copies I had of the tapes. And I put those up on Bandcamp. And you can download those for free, because I know a lot of people have, uh, they, they bought the album before, or they have the old LP. You can download those and mix them in if you want. I, I had them up on my website. They're still there in MP3, but these are AIFF, or you can download as WAV files if you want really good quality, and they've been remastered. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can get a, a semblance of the entire work with the narration, if you want, by, you know, g- going to those files on Bandcamp. But in terms of the r- original quadraphonic version, I, I don't know what to say. There aren't too many. Uh, well, right now, there are zero opportunities. <laughs> uh, I always had a fantasy that um i would love to have it somehow produced at the the getty you know museum up in the malibu hills uh like at sunset or something but that i think will probably remain a fantasy (laughs) yeah
1: that'd be incredible i yeah i've um i mean i've been seems like i'm always listening to the album but but Yeah, thinking about how awesome it would be to hear it in in quad and in a great setting with some good visuals would be. It's time. I think it's time, you know, after maybe once this COVID thing settles down, fingers crossed.
3: Yeah, well, I'm certainly open to suggestions, but it's it's not as easy as as it once was, let's say, to (laughs) get something like that happening.
0: I wanted to ask you about the shepherd tone, mm-hmm. and I guess the thing. So I've been, I've listened to Lost Atlantis. I mean, the CD many times, and at first, when I first heard the shepherd tone, I thought, "Well, that's the cool thing about it being an auditory illusion." I wasn't sure I actually heard it, so that was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. But the um, creating it with the two fifty eights, you know, you've got like if you have an A four at four forty hertz, and then you. Um, you know, you have an A3 at 220 and so on. The the hard part in doing this in bukla is that volume modulation. So that as the, if you're doing a glissando down, you know, you have to mix out the volume of the first sound so that the volume of the second sound comes in. I'm right. trying to, I can't figure out how you did that. Uh,
3: Well, I'm going to disappoint you a little in that. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember exactly back in 1977 (laughs) what I was doing. But by the way, I was very impressed that you picked that up because you're the first person that ever got that. And I've never talked about it. I mean, I knew about that from, uh, you know, the the Bell Labs demo. And of course, in 69, both uh, Jim Tenney and Jean-Claude Rousset used that in pieces. There's always an argument of who used it first. Uh, And I love the uh, effect. Uh, I didn't want to do it, you know, literally like they had used it, although Jean-Claude did do some abstraction from it. Um, So I, I just worked on trying to recreate that. And I'm sure that part of that, in terms of what you're talking about with the amplitude thing, was done, you know, using that control voltage, uh, you know, matrix gate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and probably there were um, overlays of, of of tracks. I just don't honestly uh, remember, and I'm sorry. No, it,
0: it it's just really hard to do that with analog oscillators. You know, in my DAW, I could whip it up in just a couple of minutes. You right know, so automation it's so easy now but you know trying i had a, a 260e Buchla module that was the it gener- generated the Shepard tone and had a little click when the um when it started over because it was digitally generated mm. and i've been trying to do it on my fairly large 200e system and it's not a technical limitation it's a um, it's a user limitation you know trying to figure out how to control that volume modulation in a, in a way that is automated enough that it it creates the illusion. Because if right. there's any break in that, as you know, if there's any break in that sine wave and the, and you introduce a harmonic or something, the illusion's lost.
3: Right. But again, you're the only... You're, uh, what is it now? 77? Uh. <laughs> well, you're it. the only person that's ever... That's that's ever noticed that, and um, I, I I appreciate that, but I can't remember exactly how. In fact, if you if you the last piece that I finished, Barnum Museum. If you ask me how I did some things there, I would have to go back, you know, and look at my files um, mm-hmm. to to remember specifically. I mean, I tend to work out a problem at that moment. And it may take me a very, very long time to work that problem out or find the solution. But once that's over, then I, I'm on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess I don't have enough uh, brain cells <laughs> to keep all of that stuff in the forefront of my mind over, uh, you know, 50 years yeah. of, uh, of, of, well, more than 50 years of, well- of- composing
0: you know from a sound design point of view which is really what we're talking about specifically is sort of like you know we could you could figure it out how to do it again if you wanted to but what's really interesting about it in the piece is that first of all you use it very briefly and um there's a there's a tension that it introduces that i really liked and you know you don't hear that that very often you don't hear the shepherd scale very often in music Unless it's being used in a way too... Well, like in the uh, the Dark Knight soundtrack, Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. used it, right? For the um, the sound of Batman's vehicles. Because right. it just feels like it's always accelerating. Yeah. That, get, that gets fatiguing. Yeah. If you use it for just long enough, going up, for example, it can build a lot of tension. And then when you use it just enough going down, it can give a nice release. And so you have to hit that sweet spot. And I felt like you really... That's one of the things I really liked about your use of it is because it's just there and then it goes away.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I have a particular philosophy, uh, which I, I'm not sure it's widely appreciated among my uh, fellow composers in the, in the field. All, but my primary concern, well, let, let me put it this way. For me, te- technology is a means to an end. I'm not too interested in works that are demonstrations of technology and not much more. So I'm interested in the the music. I mean, I want to communicate musically to people. And so I try to um, have the technology be invisible and it doesn't bother me that people don't understand what I've done um, what I want them to get is the you know the final overall result of whatever it is that i've I've created so mm. I really appreciate you saying that and again i I was impressed that you noticed that
0: I live a lonely life Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Robert's got time. Nobody, nobody understands me.
3: I think it's. I think it's a matter. I think it's a matter of perception. Um, I mean, different people have different ways of perceiving things. Uh, I guess uh, you, but from people in the field, I think one expects maybe a little more. Professional ability, let's say, at being able to perceive stuff, but I don't, I don't talk about the technology of what I've done an awful lot. I think the Lost Atlantis CD of all my CDs uh, goes into that more than any other. I mean, the mm-hmm. Monkey King and um, uh, Barnum Museum. Uh, which have a lot of technology, I mean it's computer, of course, behind it. I don't even mention it um, because those are uh, they have literary uh, backgrounds and and in the booklets of those CDs. I just really relate the the stories and so forth. So for uh, I'm not saying technology is not important. It, it's paramount, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do, you, what you are able to do. The the music couldn't exist without it, but I would like it to remain invisible, you know, behind the curtain kind of thing in terms of having the music be the most important thing and always out in the, in the forefront. So I appreciate your, your comments on that.
1: Yeah. I guess you probably always, you know, want the music to stand up on its own without you know, like, Hey, look, Here's how I did it. <laughs>
3: yeah, right. Well, that's the thing people are always asking: what programs did you use? And I've never said it, but I always feel like saying, "What does it matter?" Uh, because <laughs> it's because it's it's how you implement something. Mm. There, there. You know, it's like some people have been looking for the holy grail their entire life, and it's not. Out there, they're not going to find it. It's how you deal with something, um, not so much what it is that I think you're you're dealing with. I mm-hmm. mean, some of the really early electronic music, which sounds maybe fairly primitive to our ears today, it has some personality. I think that's why people like uh, Louie and BB Bar stuff. It has a particular quirkiness and personality to it totally. that is is unique. And um that that kind of stuff is is very important to me in terms of the, you know, the quality of the music.
0: You know, I think that the question about how did how did you do something comes up a lot in the in these worlds where we're using tools that uh, challenge people's kind of general acceptance of what is what is done. You know, if you do, you're not going to ask, you know, Ichak Rabin how he plays his his instrument, or Ichak, Ichak Perlman plays the violin. You know, how did you get that sound? Because people know what a violin is. Uh-huh. And the when I was in um, London a few years ago, I was at the Tate Modern, and I was really into painting at the time doing a lot of geometric shapes, heavily inspired by Mondrian and Rothko and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to understand how Kazimir Malevich got those straight lines in his suprematism work. And they had it there. So I got, I got to the, went to the museum. And the great thing about the Tate is you can get really close to the paintings. And I leaned on on that and the lines are not straight. They're actually really craggy. It's just the farthest away you get from the painting the lines come together.
1: Huh.
0: So he didn't have like a straight edge or something. It just looks like they're really, really sharp lines and beautiful painting anyway. And it started making me think about how when you are the artist, you take the tools for granted and they're not necessarily part of your composition. They're a detail of the of the piece of art that you're creating. But sometimes that's the only way that people can really begin to relate to the work so they can understand and, and get a vocabulary for how it was created, you know, so that they can they appreciate it and they want to relate and they want to connect with it in a new way. And understanding, you know, the genesis of it or the tools that were used to create it can play a big part of that. And that I think that's kind of what we see with, you know, with your early work with the book club. We're now in the 21st century. If you did this now for the first time, it would be interesting, but it wouldn't be. It would still be beautiful, but it wouldn't be groundbreaking like it was in 77. You know, so people now want to understand how they know it's groundbreaking. They want to relate to that. And they want to know what you did differently because it's still difficult to achieve some of that stuff now. And they want to relate back to that in a vocabulary that still hasn't really been fully established. Kind of going back to that suprematism. Example, I still can't make straight lines in my paintings, no matter how far I stand away from it. Mm-hmm. But the, that, that kind of, and that's one of the things people love about this podcast, I think, is that we talk a lot about the, the creation of stuff, and we use the, the, um, the vocabulary of the boucle itself. And this is kind of this general acceptance from the people who don't make music on boucle systems, that whatever they have in their mind would probably be possible in the system. And it's only when they actually want to start to affect that that design or achieve that sound and they get into it that they start to ask about, how do we do these things? Because they want, to, they want to be able to do them too. And it's not just striking a key on a piano. So I think that's kind of where the that mindset comes from. Although digging a little deeper into your psyche, I think it would probably get pretty annoying if all of the conversation were about how you used five oscillators and how you tuned you know, the, kept them in tune with each other. And then the mechanics of that stuff can be really interesting, but it's not what you were trying to do when you created Los Atlantis, just like Malevich wasn't trying to establish how straight lines are done in Suprematism. So I see that on, I see that from both sides. It's just trying to find that happy medium. You know, if I had a piece of work that people really wanted to know how I made it, I'd probably love that for a little while. And then I would probably get kind of annoyed. And say, well, let's look at the art. You know, let's talk about the philosophy, or where my mind was at, or you know, the mental illness that I was suffering at the time. <laughs> and well, you know, it's just it's true. And um, so that that's kind of made me made me think about that and how we talk about art and how we get into aesthetics. And that really the the kind of the point being that people want to connect to your work and whatever or our work in whatever way they can. But there is a certain point where you know you don't want to engage on that discussion anymore, and I think that if Malavik were alive now, I probably wouldn't ask him how he did the straight lines and that stuff, but rather, you know, stuff about his palette or what he envisioned, you know, and stuff like that. I wouldn't care as much about how how he achieved it because there's been so much discussion about that already.
3: Yeah, that's a great analysis, uh, Robert. I I agree, I agree with you. Um, I In teaching, I would sometimes uh, give some specifics about something that I had done as an example uh, to the the students to try to have them do something similar. And in in that interview with Matrix, in one part in there, I actually give um, a a pretty detailed description of a... uh, a design I did originally with a TX eight sixteen, but um, I I did a, a dump of everything into FM eight. Um, so I think I use that graphic uh, display to to explain it in terms of a uh, a, a transformational a timbre how this thing changes through time because of X, Y, and Z. And sometimes the students would uh, be interested, but uh, sometimes they wouldn't be interested. And uh, there was, with some students, I noticed there was always a point that if you got uh, too technical, I mean, like I, I would have them do, Uh, which a lot of them didn't like, you know, uh, problems in terms of uh, um, analyzing uh, the details of a particular FM design in terms of the frequency constituents and uh, et cetera. So uh, I think if you give people... So what they're really asking for in terms of an <laughs> awful lot of information they may not be that happy or it may not be that you know that much to them i I think the thing I, I, for me is again, I want to do this. how can I do it? I have to analyze it for myself and then find out how to create that and uh, that's a kind of challenge that I've had in. Uh, almost all my work. And it's always been that way. And uh, trying to accomplish that is part of what interests me in composing.
0: Yeah, that's very insightful. I'm After 45 years as an educator, I, I think you probably had a lot of students who just weren't going to get it. You know, you know what I mean? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) That that could be, you'll find all kinds of different ways to try to make somebody appreciate something that you really want them to. You can deconstruct it, or you can try to be persuasive, or you can put it in a different light and so on. But I guess at a certain point, you just sort of, you're like, okay, this is just what they're going to like, or this is what they're going to do. And that's how it is.
3: Well, I, uh, I early arrived at the point, uh, the best that I could do in terms of, uh, there were two things I could do in terms of quote unquote teaching composition. One was to give people tools. And that's where the technology, whether it's uh, the Buchla 200 or a software program or how to do Palestinian counterpoint, whatever, you could do that, and then uh, you can try to make them think, uh, or help them—not uh, make them, but help them think—and uh, find out how to do what it is that they want to do, and—and and that's about it. It's—it's it's up to the, you know, the student after that. But I think that the idea that a particular tool is going to solve all my problems is doesn't really work.
0: Yeah, I'm agree with. <laughs> I'm looking around my studio like a hundred thousand dollars just agreed with you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not literally I if I had spent that much, I, I don't I don't know what I'd probably be at my second job right now, but you know there's that like, oh this new piece of gear, this pedal or this synth or this module or whatever will be the thing that unlocks this composition that I have in my mind.
3: Well, there are people. There are people that uh, um, I have an awful lot of Facebook friends and people email me and so forth, and they send me pictures of their studios, and I, sometimes I'm aghast at mm-hmm. there are just walls <laughs> full of equipment. And uh, here I'm sitting at my studio now, which is a, a Mac Mini with a Samsung monitor uh on a really i guess what is a kind of elaborate card table um (laughs) yep and uh it's not it's not that i uh am saying anything negative about having a lot of equipment because if you enjoy it and can do stuff with it i think that's that's great but um i do have a lot of plugins i have Probably hundreds of plugins, so I I guess it's the same kind of thing. Um, they just
0: take up less space.
3: <laughs> but yeah. uh, uh, but I think that I I am really surprised at the sheer size of some people's studios that they send me in <laughs> in, in photographs. Um, rarely, though, do they send me uh sound files mm-hmm. <laughs> but 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 I do get pictures
0: so a little subtext there yeah i was i felt so dejected when i found out that klaus schultz who was one of my all time favorite composers you know berlin school uh-huh. dozens of albums he sold almost all of his hardware he kept the things that, that were really sentimental to him but he sold his giant moog he sold a lot of custom sequencers and so on And he uses, he doesn't make music anymore, but up to this point, he used a a MacBook with, you know, plugins and stuff because he could be, he, he just wanted to write music. He didn't, he wasn't a gear fetishist. He just used the gear that was available to him. And now with the computer, he could truly do anything he wanted and not be held back by cables and this and that, you know, he just wanted to get into the music. But I always associated him with a giant stage full of gear. And now he's, you know, he was just down to the laptop. I thought, man, that's kind of sad because the, I was chasing that that gear lust. Like, oh, someday I'll sound like Klaus Schultz if I just get another sequencer. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I can understand his uh, thinking because that's pretty much uh, the direction that, that I went in. Yeah.
0: But there's the flip side. If you ever look at Hans Zimmer's studio or Junkie XL, They have giant rooms, just chock full of stuff. Hans Zimmer has a huge 5U modular synthesizer that he had custom made. And, you know, just it's a beautiful room. But so there's the other side of that, too. We don't all have to switch just to computers. We can still keep
3: (laughs) No, I don't. In fact, I, uh, when, when the, uh, everybody was getting rid of their analog equipment, um i wrote an article which is probably not available is for the american music center which doesn't exist anymore and um and so their magazine i don't even know how you could find it but even at the, at that stage i predicted that analog would not die and people thought i was crazy <laughs> um and of course now it's had a a huge resurgence so I don't uh, have any negative feelings about people doing, you know, what you say. If you if you love analog and you love the physicality, and I understand that, having worked with it so long myself, you know, the the physicality of being able to patch stuff and and as I said, work from a point of of gestalt thinking. Is is a great way to work, and I think an awful lot of uh, great music and very inventive things have been done that way. It's a personal thing, and I just decided, well, I decided a long time ago that for me, it was better to to you know switch over to computers, and uh, I could never afford uh, you know walls full of equipment anyway. I'm not Hans Zimmer. <laughs> yeah. There was one thing that uh, um, Kyle brought up going back to Lost Atlantis um, that bringing up the fact that Plato never finished the Kreetios which is what I I based the piece on and, and also the narration and do I therefore feel Lost Atlantis is unfinished and how did I end up ending it the way that i did and what i know i don't feel las atlantis is unfinished and what i did was uh tack on edgar casey's prediction that atlantis would rise again Hmm, he thought hmm, it hmm. would be somewhere in the bahamas Uh, (laughs) unfortunately it hasn't happened um now recently they think they found uh some little sunken island off of Spain somewhere that some people think is Atlantis. But anyway, I just took that idea from Casey that Atlantis would rise again. And because I I wanted to do that section where it starts out really simply, tambrally, repeating the 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 kind of little theme that goes through from the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, I mean pitch pitch theme, yeah. and then it just keeps swelling uh, in waves up until like the you know the ocean crashing. It gets very noisy, and then goes down to uh, a, a simple quiet timbre again. So yeah. I just use that as an excuse. <laughs> yeah,
0: when <laughs> I so you, the last track of of it is called Epilogue. So it can't can't be unfinished if it's an epilogue. But when I was thinking about that kind of in the literal sense, you know, thinking that Plato never wrote Hermocrates as far as we know, and, you know, scholars assume that Critias is is incomplete, Um, I guess it reads incomplete. So I was thinking about that from a literal point of view and that that work truly is incomplete and never will be completed but in your work you could have the reason i was kind of my my thinking behind that question was and and you actually answered it and that you created your own ending for it you know it, and just even by calling it an epilog puts an ending on it even if you didn't have specifically in you know a, a, an ending in mind right so i found that to be philosophically very interesting
3: well it uh I guess it's part of the idea. I think I said somewhere in the notes, again, uh, uh, it's a long time since I wrote them, but that, I mean, to me, Atlantis is, uh, it's a place that never was or never will be, but has a kind of uh, hopeful promise Mm -hmm. that uh, I think we as humans like to think might be possible somewhere and so bringing that Edgar Cayce yeah. idea in there just sort of ends it on that you know what if uh, kind of thing but I think that the musically it it does come to a, a close
0: it does that, yeah I listened to it right after I sent that question and I thought well I guess I shouldn't have asked that but still pretty interesting <laughs> nonetheless <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Barry, thank you so much for spending all this time with us. It's been my pleasure. I love it. It's been a real treat for us, for sure. I, um, yeah, very, very exciting. Yeah. Well, I guess with that, um, we'll let you go. Thanks, Barry. That's okay, all I- thank you very
3: much. Nice to talk to both of you, Kyle and Robert. Likewise. Thanks. Take care.
0: would like to thank Barry for being on the show. Check out barryschrader.com or barryschrader.bandcamp.com for more information on Barry and his music. And you can listen to Lost Atlantis and Trinity. which are just fantastic.
1: Check out our friends Tim Held's podcast, The Pajra Modcast, as well as Ben Wilson and Ed Ball's Esoteric Modulation podcast.
0: Visit waveformmagazine.com for more details on how you can subscribe to the Quarterly Synthesizer
1: magazine. If you want to help support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash sourceofuncertainty.
0: You can find out more about the show or contact us through our website, sourceofuncertainty.audio. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Find us on Instagram at Source of Until
0: next time.